this week on the Back Table Podcast. It's not mysterious. It's just comfort, practice, like anything else. Having some mentors, friends, colleagues. Balloon sign posse is just one of the options. But I think people can do a lot more in the operating room and in the office. While I love that colleagues refer to me, like our otologist, our head and neck refer to me, they can do a lot of this stuff. And I'm happy to show them. They just often don't take me up on the offer. But <laughs> no, I throw that out there in this, in this, in this setting. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Stryker's ENT solutions offer the control you need, the flexibility you want, and enable you to deliver the experience your patients deserve. With Stryker, you gain access to the most complete suite of solutions to help make your vision of patient care a reality. From technology to training, from reimbursement tools to patient education, Stryker is there to help. Together with their customers, they are driven to make healthcare better. Learn more at ent.stryker.com. Now back to the show. My name is Gopi Shaw. I'm a pediatric ENT, and I have a very special guest today. I have Dr. Aisha Khalid. She's the chief of ENT at Cambridge Health Alliance in Massachusetts and a clinical instructor for ENT at Harvard Medical School. Her clinical focus is rhinology, skull-based surgery, and allergy. She also completed an MBA at the MIT Sloan School of Management, a program focused on innovation and global leadership. Dr. Khalid is here today to talk to us about balloon sinuplasty. Welcome to the show, Aisha. How are you? I'm so good, Gopi. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. Can you first tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your practice? Sure. So I am uh, very excited that I have been at my current practice, which is hospital employed for nine, almost 10 years. But prior to that, I've also been in academic practice and private practice. So this is really a perfect blend of the two. Your practice now, so you're in Massachusetts in Cambridge. Um, and would you say 50% of your practice is rhinology focused, all of it, you know, whatever comes into your office at this point? So I am blessed because we do have quite a bit of ENTs in the city of Boston. I am at Cambridge Health Alliance, which is a satellite of Harvard Medical School. And I have a very large underserved population that we have to keep within our health system. So I have about an 85% rhinology practice, perhaps rhinology and a mix of allergy. And the remaining 15 is, as you said, whatever comes in the door in terms of general ENT. That's awesome. So then you're getting to see and treat sort of what mostly of patients that the clinical pathologies that you're excited about, interested in. Yes. And over time, I've been able to follow the adults and kids as well, because we have the allergy part and the general part, we definitely see them before and after their procedures. I see them for a long time. Yeah. So we're talking about balloons today and balloon sinuplasty. Can you give our audience a little bit of an idea of like the evolution of balloons in ENT and where it fits into your practice? Balloon sinuplasty for me back, you know, when I was a resident was not a thing. It was not even available. And I think the technology came to ENT from cardiology as just a great way to open the sinuses. In the beginning, I mostly had used balloons very infrequently. I was trained in a rhinology fellowship and really did a full functional endoscopic sinus surgery predominantly in the operating room for the first many years of my practice. I would say that my balloon sinuplasty component as a tool in my practice has really evolved now. I do about 25% of my cases in the office, mostly because patients don't want to miss work. They want to minimize their recovery. They want to see if they can not pay the high capitated rates they have for a deductible to even go to the operating room. So balloon sinuplasty for me has now become a mainstay usually used in about 40 to 50% of my sinus cases for a variety of reasons, whether it's initial or revisions. So tell me about those patients, the variety of the sinus patients. 
Are we talking, you know, mostly chronic sinusitis? Is there ever a role in acute barotrauma? Let's let's kind of go into who you feel like the indication. Usually, usually the way I approach the rhinology patient, whether it's a recurrent acute sinusitis, a chronic sinusitis with polyps, or sometimes patients have an incidental and very specific problem. For example, I get acute frontal sinusitis whenever I fly for work and it acts up and the pressure doesn't allow me to take trips. In a patient like that, I would do a very limited procedure in the office and do a frontal sinus balloon because they've been on treatment and they failed versus maybe the other extreme, which is chronic sinus patients with or without polyposis, even ones that I've operated on before, I may do a revision balloon to reopen up a frontal sinus or a maxillary sinus that has been scarred and then really think about getting the drug topical therapies in a better position for them. So I don't really have a specific patient that I use balloons for, but I think about it a lot in terms of one of the tools that I use, whether it's in the operating room or the office. So for the patients that have chronic sinusitis with polyps, are those the patients that maybe the polyp burden has decreased, you've done a fesson, but maybe the isolated frontal or sphenoid, you know, when they come in, looks small? Tell me a little bit about the chronic sinusitis with polyp patients, because I guess I, <laughs> I'm only ask because most of the time we think of, you know, fests and microdebreeders and you know, making entrostomies big for those patients for the same, you know, reasons of topical irrigations and topical steroids and things like that. No, I, I think that's exactly as you stated. A chronic sinusitis patient with polyps, my first goal is how can I do an endoscopic sinus surgery generally in the operating room unless they have comorbidities and get enough of an entrostomy that the topical therapies will get through. I will say over the years, the size, for example, of my maxillary entrostomy, even using instruments, has really gotten smaller. I'm trying to keep the natural milieu of the nose, and I'm learning that inflammation is definitely the problem. Then in those patients, whether they had surgery with me or someone else, the polyp burden may have gotten smaller, but they, for example, really have some polypoid inflammation or polyps in the superior recess. Do I take these patients that have scarred off their frontal sinus or their frontal recess back to the operating room, or can I manage them in the office, for example, with a frontal sinus balloon, perhaps even drug-eluting therapies or a stent or a spacer? I will often resort to that. So that revision sphenoid and, and frontal, in fact, is exactly the way that I use balloon sinuplasty for revision cases. And then for recurrent acute patients, how do you do you use balloon for those or only if you're worried about a potential like complication of an acute sinusitis, like maybe they're presenting with preceptal cellulitis or something like that of the orbit? That's a great question because the recurrent acute, actually, I base it on something very different, which is almost binary for me. And it really involves do they need a septoplasty or not? If a patient has uh, recurrent acute sinusitis, fairly decent anatomy, wishes to minimize recuperation time, and has presented for me some scattered disease, either in the maxillary or the frontal sinuses, and I know I can access it, I will often say, perhaps let's do a balloon sinuplasty. And there may be a chance that if I balloon your frontals and your maxillaries, reduce the turbinates in the office, for example, it may be enough. It may not be enough. I generally tend to cite anecdotally 70 to 75% of the time because I find that very often I never need to take these patients to the operating room again. Whereas if they have a very deviated septum, even with recurrent acute, now let's go to the operating room. We have to address your septum and your turbinates. The question becomes, if I do septoplasty, turbinate reduction, maxillary entrostomy, and take care of the uncinate, do I open the frontal sinus that you had disease in with instrumentation or with a balloon? And I would say a recent shift for me is in those cases in the operating room, I've been using a frontal sinus balloon, even though I did a septoplasty turbinates maxillary entrostomy, and that has been working very well for me. Yeah. In terms of the barotrauma patients, 
how much time do you give them after, let's say, you know, you have a patient had a flight, uh, or maybe it's a stewardess, you know, somebody that actually, this is their profession, and they complain of, you know, right frontal headache, or maybe it's left face pain or something. How much time do you give them to say, hey, let's see if this gets better, try some decongestants, saline, you know, whatever. How much time do you give them and what's your medical management? And then when do you consider a balloon for those patients? I actually have a a few airline stewardesses and pilots. So that is the perfect question, as well as consultants. That is a field where they often travel every, you know, Monday and Thursday. If I see a patient for the first time, whether it's barotrauma or even chronic sinusitis or recurrent acute, I would say generally I'm trying medical therapy for two months. Unless they've been referred from another ENT or one of my colleagues and have already had a few months of medical therapy. For me, a mainstay of medical therapy always includes a saline rinse. It generally includes some form of topical steroids. I have often done the budesonide solution within the saline, or every patient, to be honest, has been on a fluticasone, Flonase, or rhinocort spray. That said, I have them do it all at once. And I say, I would like you to use a saline rinse. I would like you to have a short course of antibiotics if you have not in the last few months. For me, that's two weeks. It has evolved from three weeks to two weeks in the last many years. And the time for me to see the patient back to allow them to sort of decide to move forward on their own with surgical intervention has shrank from three to four months down to two, sometimes even six weeks. And I would say the third biggest change in my practice over the last many years is I don't often get repeat CTs. When I was in training, perhaps they had a CAT scan prior to seeing me and they would say, I haven't had maximal or adequate medical therapy. And I would give them the medical therapy and repeat the CAT scan. And in this day and age, I'm also not repeating it. Only some patients now get steroids depending on their medical comorbidities. It also used to be very standard for me to add a prednisone taper. But to be honest, many patients push back on taking oral steroids. So that's not an always for me. Right. I'm glad you brought up imaging. So pretty much everybody before you're planning a balloon gets a CAT scan. Yes? Yes. I would say before a surgical intervention, yes. So are there certain findings on the CAT scan that say, hey, this is actually going to be a great candidate. And then what are the findings on a CAT scan where you're like, nah, we need to do something like a traditional fest for this. And then we can also talk about endoscopic findings. Absolutely. I would say from an imaging standpoint, I have very often been ambitious that when I see frontal recess opacification or frontal sinus that is plugged up and gray on the CAT scan, and they're giving me this symptomatology of forehead pressure or issues with a flight, I will say, oh my goodness, we can go ahead and open that. And what I have been burned with is the septum. And so making sure that both on imaging and endoscopically, you can decongest and easily pass the camera is a bare minimum for when you have other instrumentation in their nose at the same time. The second big thing on imaging is I do like to take note of how much anterior ethmoidal anatomy is blocked, and particularly if there's osteitis. So if I see that there's thickening of bones, even if the opacification is very scattered, that tells me that they might be tougher candidates to balloon. Again, speaking about the frontal and also the maxillary, both in the operating room and in the office. But if I don't see chronic osteitis, and if the septum makes it accessible. I would say, particularly in the office, but also in the operating room, there are very few cases that I feel like at this point cannot balloon. The question is what would serve the patient best and also what site of service am I at? I should preface, Scopey, that I personally do not have image guidance in the office. I know some people do. And and if I did, I think that would allow me to do more. But When I don't have image guidance in the office, I am relying on my endoscopic view or a lighted guide wire. Yeah. And so the osteitis is a great point. I'm glad you brought that up because that makes everything so much harder. And whether it's using a true cut, a kerosene, or trying to slip a balloon up, that bone can be so firm. And it's 
it almost makes you kind of, am I in the right spot, right? Like the tactile sensation, the feedback is a little bit different. In terms of endoscopic findings, so you discussed um, deviated septum, room. What if you have like really boggy turbinates or, you know, and I keep coming back to the polyps. Two questions again. One would be, uh, how do allergies play a role with balloon sinuplasty? Are they better candidates or not such good candidates? And then we'll ask, I'll ask you the second question afterwards. <laughs> I will say, so I serve as the current president of the American Academy of Otolaryngic Allergy, you know, until this next month. And it's never easier when they have allergies. <laughs> I, I, and my pact with patients, I try very much to engage the patient at the forefront the minute I see nasal polyposis, or as you mentioned, boggy turbinates, perhaps middle turbinates that are starting to have even polyploid inflammation, I will require the patient to agree to allergy test if they have not been done so as part of having the surgery. Because many patients that have either severe allergic inflammation or are on the spectrum to having polyposis or have polyps want you to do the sinus surgery and then be done with it. And I know that whether it's my surgery or anyone else's, the inflammation will bring it back. So if they have allergies or boggy turbinates or polyps, it actually doesn't preclude me from including balloon sinuplasty as part of their therapy. I would say with the polyps themselves, I will often shave the polyps in the middle meatus, open the entrostomies. And for example, a case I did this week, had polyposis, but it was anterior and superior. And the posterior ethmoids on the imaging and the sphenoid were fairly clear. There was some scattered opacification in the posterior area of the sphenoids. In that patient, I did what we would call a traditional anterior endoscopic sinus surgery. So maxillary entrostomy, frontal recess, frontal sinus with tools taking down the polyps. But then I ballooned the sphenoid sinus because I didn't see a, a reason that if your anterior drainage is working and your posterior mucosa looks really healthy, your superior turbinate looks really healthy, let's see what we can get away with. So it doesn't preclude me, but it certainly gives me pause that I'm going to be seeing these patients prior and after for a little bit longer. Yeah. And with the example that you just gave, doing a traditional fest for some sinuses and then using a balloon. How much of your practice, or do you find it often that you do sort of a hybrid fest balloon in the OR for these patients? And which sinuses do you traditionally have to open up, or I guess have to open up in the traditional methods of true cuts and opening the, making formal entrostomies? And which sinuses do you find that you end up doing more ballooning with? That's a great question. And it goes back to the question you asked about the evolution in my practice. I would say five years ago, seven years ago, I would traditionally use instrumentation on all sinuses, and perhaps there would be one sinus, generally the frontals that I might balloon. Yeah. Now it has shifted to approximately 20 to 30% of my cases are hybrid in some fashion. The most common sinus that I would use a balloon sinuplasty on when I'm doing a traditional FES or a septoplasty or terminates is the frontal. Second is the sphenoid. Third is the maxillary. I will say that as an endoscopic sinus surgeon and one who loves rhinology, the maxillary sinus is the trickiest. Many people feel that the frontal sinus and frontal recess is the most mysterious or, you know, the balloon sinuplasty, to be honest, can sometimes be a great way for someone to approach the frontal sinus and still do an anterior endoscopic sinus surgery and nasal airway sur surgery. For me, the frontal sinus is not mysterious, but the question becomes, I've had so many frontal sinusotomies, traditional instrumentation that over the years had scarred. And then I started to think, well, what can I leave up there? Or how can I refresh the mucosa and lay it down that now I've been resorting to, do I have to use instrumentation up there? That's the question that goes through my mind. Yeah. Are there certain pathologies that you're like, I'm going to have to use instrumentation on this? Are there certain that just pop up where you're like, we got to open this up? Like I think of allergic fungal sinusitis and I'm like, that's got to be opened up. Or I think of like, maybe what about your CF patients or your PCD patients? How do you think about those groups of patients? Oh, I think that's absolutely true. There's certainly populations, CF, all the ones 
that you named that then also lead to polyposis. So you endoscopically, preoperatively see polyposis and you may not see the inverting papilloma that lays behind the allergic fungal that sits in the maxillary sinus, the cystic fibrosis patient. Those patients, I think, deserve and usually in my hands will get a traditional instrumentation endoscopic sinus surgery of all the sinuses and or all the sinuses that are affected. For example, with the allergic fungal, it can often be unilateral on the scan. But following that, the question becomes, in revisions that occur as these diseases often lead to recurrence of the inflammation or the polyps, I'm really looking for ways to minimize their further surgeries as polyps come back or disease comes back. Yeah, no, it makes sense, especially when I think of the amount, the number of surgeries. I mean, now we have for AFS, you know, we have things like Dupixin or Dupilumab, you know, for CF, we have modulators, but you're still going to have those patients where maybe those medications aren't as effective or they've had now, you know, six surgeries and going in every time and taking tissue out is not necessarily making it better. So maybe a little dilating the frontal that's scarred a little bit on that patient might actually be all they need just to continue with the topicals when you, when you put it that way. Are there certain symptoms that you feel work really well with a balloon? Like I think of like, you know, headache or forehead pain and face pain. Are there certain symptoms that tend to get better with balloon sinuplasty or when those symptoms come up, that's going to be on your, you know, as an option for you? I think the number one symptom you touched upon, facial pain, particularly asking the patient to point. So many people will say, my face hurts or my head hurts. But if they're pointing directly to a cheek sinus, they're pointing um, to their forehead or sphenoid patients who are sometimes tricky and can on imaging then have isolated um, sphenoid disease will often point to the top of their head or say that it pushes down. That's generally number one to make me think of balloon sinuplasty as an option, especially if on their imaging they have scattered disease or particular sinuses that are involved, then I say balloon sinuplasty can address this and I don't need to go to instrumentation. But the second thing I've noticed over the years, which is very interesting and I think has been like a hot topic of debate within rhinology and the world of ENT is nasal congestion or patients describing it as I feel clogged or stuffy, particularly where glasses rest, kind of that mid-ethmoid region, I will so often have done a frontal balloon sinuplasty, either as part of a procedure or in the office in isolation. And the patients will say, my forehead pressure or my headaches are much, much better. And by the way, I feel I get more air or I can breathe better. And that is very anecdotal in my experience, but has been super interesting when I think about like laminar airflow in the nose. Yeah. And do you use the sinus surveys? Like do your patients all get like the SNOT-22? Does the balloon, can you, you know, do you still do the same sinus surveys or do you have a different survey that you use that's, you know, more specific for balloon sinuplasty? I don't know if there is one. I'm just... That is an excellent question. When I started practice, you know, I don't, I no longer really participate in clinical research. And I will say that when I started, I collected SNOT-22s on every patient. And the reality is, I did not review them very often. So our nurses informed me that having patients who, by the way, I have 50% of my patients are non-English speaking. So something about having access. I no longer do surveys. There's very limited there are some patients where I've been following their EQ5. There's another set of surveys around the eustachian tube, but the patient has to prompt that they fall into that category. Otherwise, my intake has very much to do with screening questions around allergic rhinitis or allergies and very little of the filling out surveys and scanning them into the media section. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, it's language is one time, although people, you know, you can build it in shore. You have to know where you're putting your data, right? Like there's got to be something on Epic or something where you can look at it and then look at last time, the time before and be able to compare all right there very easily. So, you know, there, I agree. There's got to be an easy system <laughs> to, to make it useful otherwise. And that being said, I, I recently 
participated in a course and I was very impressed in discussions with some of the other ENTs. One was private practice, one was academic, and they used the surveys and they've actually come back to it as a way to sort of prove and edit to themselves. Okay, I had forehead pain. How many get better? How many don't? And they use it for their staff. So I'm aspirationally hoping to go back to that, but it has not happened yet. (laughs) When you are talking to patients about sort of, you know, when it's time to do an intervention, do you talk to them about balloon and traditional FAS? Do you just say, you know, no, this patient's going to, you know, the bear trauma patient, for example, is, hey, they're going to get better from a balloon. So I'm just going to talk to them about this. What is that conversation like for you with the patient? I was trained in the fashion that you have to give patients all their options. And that's the reason I think that's a great question is I very much have standardized over the years my conversation. And it's to the point where I've recently had some patients I saw right before COVID who have returned. In Boston, we were closed for so many months and many of them were figuring out work and insurance. And when they come back three, four years later, I tell them the whole gamut, which starts with if you're a candidate for barotrauma, recurrent acute, or you really want an in-office or it's isolated frontal, I will say the following. We certainly could offer you a balloon sinuplasty procedure. Let me explain how that works. It has generally a chance in my hands of 70, 75%. You won't need a greater sinus procedure. If you need the greater sinus procedure, the recovery won't be a few days. It'll likely be a week, if not two. Please don't travel. By the time I finish my script of presenting both options, I've recently had patients say back to me, that's exactly what you said to me three years ago. And I actually tell them, that's very good. That, that means I'm very consistent. And in some ways, maybe I should be editing my script a little and evolving. What has evolved is the percentage that we do in the office as compared to even prior to COVID. That has evolved greatly. And they have been surprised when I've said now, I think I can do your case in the office. I know I said you had to go to the operating room. So it'll be interesting to see where that lands. Yeah. And so let's say you're taking a patient to do a frontal balloon sinuplasty in the office. What's your setup like? How do you like to anesthetize and control for bleeding in the office? Similar to the office and the operating room, I have a very similar protocol in both. The difference, of course, being that in the office, I give a lot more time to putting topical pledgets that have a lidocaine with Afrin solution that they're soaked in. We used to use cotton balls and the aerosolizing spray. And to be honest, during COVID, when I wasn't allowed at our hospital to use the aerosolizing spray, I switched to the long cottonoid pledgets that we would normally use in the operating room. And I've stuck with those. So first step is five to 10 minutes of putting the pledgets in right in the front. Second step is another five to 10 minutes closer to 10 where you put one in the middle meatus on both sides, one inferior. By the time you get to step three, you're 15 to 20 minutes in and I'm doing an injection with the lidocaine with epinephrine now, I am finding that they should not feel their injection. I have started reclining patients a little bit more in the office. I've also learned that all of my colleagues that have taught me that having music or distraction or headphones is a great idea. I've really had to, over the years, train our staff and our trainees that may come by. I don't traditionally have residents, but sometimes I have medical students and I have physician assistants that I'm training. And I think the most important thing to in-office procedures is the conversation. So if someone else is saying, oh, gosh, that looks terrible or "Uh oh, that will make the patient really nervous. So really controlling the conversation that's in the room versus the preparation out of the room. And finally, I will say that no matter what intranasal procedure I'm doing in the office, the tray setup and the room setup is generally always exactly the same so that no one has to think about, well, which which things do I open today? They obviously won't open a balloon if it's not a balloon, but the the tray and 
a laminated photo of that tray sitting for our staff in case someone's filling in has over the years gone a really long way in not having to leave the room to get something. So what is on your tray or your back table? What is always, what's on the card? I love it. I love the use of back table, by the way. (laughs) So on the tray in the office, I will often have the long cottonoid pledgets in a specimen cup where we put the liquid and I'll often tell them to give me more than I need. So it used to be in just four. And now I, I make sure there's six or eight so that that's something you don't have to run for. Bayonets for placement, a defog, which I didn't always used to use in the office, but just goes such a long way for your, for your endoscopic view. And I stick that right on a chucks on the patient so that you feel like you're in the operating room. You can quickly go to it. Uh, freer, but the freer that you want to have, for example, for mobilizing the middle turbinate should be a little I will say smaller or narrower than the traditional in-office larger size, which is not may not work for some noses. Another instrument that I love, but I don't love the name, so I call it the turbinate instrument because yeah. there is a turbinate crusher. And if you think about the names bayonet and turbinate crusher, those patients have commented on. Then I'll have in a control syringe, which I've started telling the hospital, yes, I'm spoiled and I'd like a control syringe every time, but it's so much easier to inject than one without the control handle. And I'll have a short needle and then I'll also have the RAN needle if I'm doing an intranasal procedure because it's got that nice bend in. I used to bend my own needles, then folks would cap, somebody would get stuck. There were so many safety issues for the staff and myself, which is really the priority. If I have those tools and a number eight suction set up, I think I can do nearly any intranasal balloon turbinate case and then the rest of the stuff they can open. Yeah. And your um, the cup of liquid, do you use oxymetazoline and like 4% Lido or what? what's on your pledgets? What do you soak them in? Oh, brilliant. So we do a 50-50 dilution, I should say, of the 4% Lido along with the oxymetazoline. And we use that anyway for decongesting of patients for scopes. So in an underserved hospital with very, I will say, at times limited staff and resources, the key is to not have a different solution for different things. In the operating room, I obviously can ask for more, including in the operating room, I always use one in a thousand and I'm able to dye it with fluorescein and, and utilize that instead of epinephrine. Of epi. Yes, exactly. But in the office, I just use the same solution we do for all our decongestants. And um, what do you like to inject with? Is it the 1% Lido, 1 in 100,000 of epi? Yes, I do do the 1%, 1 in 100,000. I will say that I have heard wonderful results with tetracaine, with colleagues, ENTs using jelly, I think the key to good topical anesthesia is time. I used to put the pledgets in for three minutes, then go in to look, then put them in for another few. And now I simply start with, it will be 20 to 30 minutes before we start your procedure. And then the procedure will be very short. So staging your rooms and putting the pledgets in before the patient for me even gets to the procedure room. I do it in a a smaller clinic room is the key. Then I think it actually doesn't matter which variation you use if you give it enough time. In terms of ballooning, do you dilate the sinus once, twice? How? I guess maybe it depends on the system for how many atmospheres you do it for and how long. Or Tell me about that, those details. You know, that's funny that you ask. I always dilate twice and I can't tell you why because sometimes I dilate once and I clearly see the the frontal recess open and yet it must be it must be my my training or a force of habit i generally for example for the frontal or the maxillary once i know and i've used used in the office a lighted guide wire and i have confirmation i do it once i withdraw and i do it again so it's always twice i don't inflate and then wait a certain period of time you know this is not as i'm training people the same as the eustachian tube balloon I dilate and then I tell them, go ahead and deflate. And what's interesting is sometimes the assistants feel like they have to hold it there for a little while. So there is a little bit of who you're working with and and letting them know 
that you don't need to wait once you've dilated. You can go ahead and deflate it uh, within, after a few seconds. Okay. And is there a certain pressure or is it going to be system dependent of how many atmospheres you're going to dilate? It is, it is system dependent. And I think that the key, so now you bring up another great question, which is the practicing of the inflation and dilation, deflation of the balloon. I always have whoever's assisting me practice it on the back table first. And I forgot to mention that because the last thing you want is like the syringe doesn't attach or you want to irrigate the maxillary sinus after you've dilated it. You want to do all those maneuvers and show them here, push it all the way down. That's a full inflation. Make sure you're using saline, Have let go, all those things. I think I do those all on the back table every time, even with the same assistant. And so if you've dilated it on the back table, um, when you deflate it and want to use it to then insert into the sinus, does that change the shape or make it too hard then to get it into the sinus? Like once it's already been inflated and deflated, does that make it harder or more difficult to pass into the sinus? No, I've never found that to be the case. I think unlike some of our other tools that we use within ENT, it doesn't change the architecture. One other little tip or trick is to pull the Personally, I use the Intellis balloons. I've used all of the different balloon types in the past. So now that now that Stryker has Intellis, it, it allows me to have the RAN needle. It allows me to have the balloon. But one tip on the, the Stryker balloon, I should say, is I do ask the assistant, practice, make sure you can inflate and deflate. When you are holding it for me, pull the lighted guide wire back until I'm in the sinus and then forward the guide wire because that will help the lighted guide wire not kind of bounce off the edges and allow you to get into the the ostea much more easily. And tell us, or the striker balloon, so the express balloon, yes? That's, yes. Okay, so it's now rebranded as the express balloon. So it has, it's light guided. Is it also image guided as well? You can use it with image guidance, which okay. I was saying earlier, I, I'm so, that's another aspirational side that I don't, I'm not lucky enough to have image guidance, but when folks tell me about some of the pathology that would make them nervous about using a balloon sinuplasty, particularly in a patient, whether it's in the operating room, but particularly in the office, if you have recurrence of polyposis in the superior meatus and you have scarred the frontal and you want to do a balloon, Having the image guidance that then attaches onto the express to just reaffirm for you beyond the lighted guide wire, you're in the right place. That's amazing. I don't have that. So I just, I count on the lighted guide wire. And I will say, I count on tactile feel because if your frontal sinus is completely opacified, sometimes it doesn't light up. Yeah. But I feel that when it goes in easily and there's no pushing and I, I sort of know I'm in the right place, I'll still inflate. But I think if people are starting out, using those two together is is amazing for giving you reassurance. Yeah. And are, are there certain sizes of the balloons or angles that are specific for the different sinuses? I assume that there's probably a 70 degree and 90 for frontal and max. And is it pretty standard in terms of angles and sizes? It's actually become so easy in that I feel that perhaps they designed the express with my order in mind because it comes ready to do the frontal. So the same balloon comes and it's pre-angled and looks very much to me like a frontal sinus ostium seeker with that same upward angle. And then it has a little plastic piece that you can re change that's marked, like I think F, S, and M, I believe are the markings. I could be mistaken because my assistants always do this, but you can then edit it from the frontal into a maxillary, into a sphenoid. If you remember what I said earlier, the frontal and the sphenoid, fairly standard, easy to do. I always find they go in maxillary. It's not that the angle is the issue. It's the arm of the balloon that's pushing against your middle turbinate and your septum and the patient might feel pressure if you are doing it in office. So you may have to move that angle between 120 and 130 to, to get it in. But, but it's fairly standard and well-marked. And if you're doing it yourself and you have someone, you know, a helping hand, even an MA, a nurse, a PA, a resident, you can just tell them, look at the letters on the plastic and curve it to that. 
so it's the same balloon. I can open just one balloon yes. for all the sinuses on both sides. It's yes. not like I have to open up separate different because I can adjust it. Yes. And then um, you make an interesting point about the max. Do you ever have to take the uncinate down to get into the max? The maxillary sinus involves strategic angles, prayer, self-affirmations <laughs> in your head if you're in the office. Um, yes, you do. And one of the things I forgot to mention that I always open on the back table is uh, like a ball tip probe. Yeah. So I have a tool that has a freer on one side and a little curved probe on the other. And I may have to anteriorly just just pull gently the uncinate process, kind of tug it forward to allow the maxillary balloon to go in. So I think now I'm very tentative in terms of how much I do to the uncinate. I think if I was in a private practice setup and I had sort of my own staff that I would train, I would probably do much more of a ambitious uncinectomy if needed to get in. So in my hands, I will freely admit sometimes I will get through the turbinate reduction and I shave the turbinates in the office. I'll get through the frontal. I'll get through the sphenoid. I'll get through one max and I just can't get into the other one. And it does happen. In that case, if you're well set up for really just taking down some of the uncinate, I would do it. I don't do it in our hospital just because of resources, timing and setup. But that's something I'm looking to do in the future. Yeah. In terms of uh, getting into the max and the frontal, what angled scope or do you do you use just the standard zero or do you like an angled scope for those cases? You know, again, it's it's interesting. I haven't thought about this in a while, but when I started practice post-fellowship, I used a zero, 30, 45 degree and 70 all the time and the 45 very, very often. And I will say that I hardly ever use a 70 degree scope and 90% of my cases, particularly if I'm doing balloons, is with a zero degree. At the most, I'll use a 30 degree. The 30 degree will often be for confirmation, whether I'm looking up or whether I'm looking at the, at the mm -hmm. maxillary. In terms of the max, do you ever have like, you know, we get problems with recirculation, even with open, like not open, but, you know, formal maxillary entrostomies. Um, how often do you see that with a balloon sinuplasty? Very rarely. I will see that I will go in to do a balloon sinuplasty for the first time, for example, and I'll notice an accessory os or some recirculation and I'll think to myself, oh, perhaps I need to balloon this patient and I need to connect those two. But to be honest, most of the recirculation for me following a maxillary entrostomy has been after my own surgery with instrumentation, which is part of why I have become of a smaller maxillary entrostomy, even with instrumentation, than I used to be if you looked at my surgeries many years ago. Yeah. It's funny in training, we don't see our post-ops. <laughs> and then we get out, we're like, oh, God. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. In terms of culture and irrigation, when you do a balloon dilation, is that uh, a normal part of your routine? Do you do it for every case or only if uh, you're getting drainage out of the sinus? I don't generally and have never been, perhaps it was part of my training, but on an initial surgery, barring allergic fungal sinusitis, odd findings, maybe a post-dental infection, which actually sometimes is the reason I'm doing a a maxillary balloon or a maxillary entrostomy. In those patients, I'll culture. Otherwise, I really don't culture patients at all. That's not part of my culture-directed antibiotics that I used to do very much in training and post-residency, a little bit post-fellowship. I instead utilize the fact that movement of the cilia and the sinuses with irrigation is really the key. So to the first question, culture is never a part of my routine. In fact, I get extremely sad when our physician assistants do culture because the patients look at the results and really obsess over the organisms and really don't obsess over the rinsing, which is what I want them to be doing. For the second part, uh, 
I only irrigate again if there is frank purulence that I see, but I guess I should preface with I often pre-treat. It used to be when I was in training fellowship first few years out, I would treat patients for seven days prior to surgery with an antibiotic, for especially if they had chronic sinusitis or any purulence or polyps, as well as prednisone. I have shrank that treatment time down, and I'm often down to about three days. But because I have had them on an antibiotic and sometimes on steroid, they usually don't have purulence the day of surgery. If I see it, I will irrigate a particular sinus, but I generally do not irrigate in the office post-balloon. And then in the operating room, of course, we irrigate anyway, so it does its function. With the express balloon, do you know, do they have like a inner cannula or something that you can irrigate if you want to or if you see something there? Is that part of their system? Yes. In fact, I have a case coming up. You can definitely, it's very easy to attach a syringe and be able to irrigate the sinus once you're in. So I have a case coming up where I pre-explain to the patient, I will do this procedure for you in office. It will limit your time off. You want a less invasive. But by the way, I see the pus in your maxillary sinus. It may be strange to have the feeling of the irrigation. Some of it may run down the back of your throat. So we will be, you know, making that sound with the suction. If you're going to irrigate, it will be leading to better results often. However, you have to bear in mind that if you're irrigating in office, you want the patient to be comfortable and they often don't like the sensation of choking. So you have to just be very ginger with the suction and make sure you capture it right away. Yeah. And just to kind of go back to the patients and sort of what who you can just do a balloon in. So it makes, you know, I understand isolated frontal or, you know, maxillary sphenoid. If you do have opacification in the anterior ethmoid or in posterior ethmoid, and let's say this is no polyps, chronic sinusitis, no polyps. For those patients, do you do just balloons or do you, who are the patients that you decide, no, I need to go and do an anterior ethmoidectomy or I need to go ahead and still do, you know, enter the bulla? I think a, a lot of the patients you're describing sound more that I would be in the category of like a hybrid fast. If I see disease in the posterior ethmoid, that's very concerning. And that definitely makes me lead, lean towards I will be doing traditional instrumentation and opening up the maxillary sinus and the ethmoidal bullas and opening up the posterior ethmoids, perhaps now more than ever and compared to prior, not necessarily taking down every bone lamellae if I'm not seeing polyps. I will still, in that case, sometimes simply balloon the frontal as a hybrid because most of their issue was in the ethmoids. That's the second category. The first patient you mentioned, scattered anterior ethmoidal disease, but no polyposis, perhaps let's say some frontal opacification on one side or the other, or frontal recess disease, and let's say some maxillary disease, I will still allow those patients, driven by the patients many of the times, because I'll give them that offering, to do balloon sinuplasty along with turbinates. And I'll simply lower the percentage. I'll say, there's still that chance. 70%, you're very happy, you're clear, and you're sick less often, and you're less congested. 30% chance we're doing a, a bigger procedure down the road. So I still give them the balloon-only option. In terms of your post-op management after the balloon or the hybrid balloon cases, rinses, uh, what else? More rinses? My <laughs> <laughs> patients, my staff laughs that you can come to see me for literally any problem in otolaryngology and you might leave with a saline rinse so you <laughs> breathe better. But that being said, I don't generally use very much packing. I, if I use packing, it's just dissolvable packing as a middle needle spacer. Rinses are key. Avoidance of nose blowing is key. Antibiotics generally are for, depending on the patient, three or four days if I was continuing it from a seven-day total for a recurrent acute or minor sinusitis. Nasal polyposis, they'll continue antibiotics and, and prednisone for a week after surgery with at much lower doses, honestly, than I used to use in the past. In terms of uh, post-op, do you see them back in clinic at, at like a week, two weeks, four weeks? 
That has evolved. I used to see every patient at a week. Then I got bolder, moved it out to two weeks, three weeks. Honestly, I'm now back at a week. I'm at a week and a month. I'll see them at about a week, seven to 10 days, three to four weeks, and then two or three months out. That's generally the norm. And one of the reasons is because in this era of healthcare, it's less to do with how their nose looks and more to do with planning on getting back to work. Many of them want to go back to work and I want to see them prior if they do construction, plumbing, house cleaning, a lot of things where they're exposed to different, you know, dust and, and situations. But so I use the seven to 10 day, not just because it's when I want to do the endoscopy, but mostly because it gives me a chance to chat with the patient about the next couple of months and what happened in their surgery. And in terms of post-op, um, like C repeat CT scans, what are the indications in your practice to re-image a patient? As much as possible to not re-image the patient. <laughs> it will only lead to grief for yourself as a surgeon. However, when asked, when patients say, you know, I'm breathing great out of one side, but the other, like, let's say the left side is still bothering me. I will never generally re-image unless a few months have gone by. I'd like to say six, maybe even a year. But some patients, rightfully, they're starting to get polyps. I'm concerned about a particular sinus. It is not common practice for me. I would say 95% of my patients never get re-imaged. And if they do get re-imaged, it's because I, like them, are concerned that they need a revision of some sort. Yeah. We've heard, you know, 70% of the time after a balloon, most patients get better. How long does that last for in terms of long-term outcomes? Is this good for, you know, a year, two years? What, what have you seen? At this point, I've seen the gamut, but I will say I have been at my current practice long enough that I have had probably five or six patients that I've re-ballooned. And I'm excited to say it was at the like five years and six years and eight years mark. And I don't mind that at all. And it was actually in the one, the first balloon patient I ever did. She came back six or seven years later. So I've been there for about nine years. So she came about two or three years ago. And it was the most hilarious conversation because she said herself, I've been doing so great. I haven't been coming. I haven't needed to. I think you need to pop the balloon into this left forehead because everything else, but you know this. And I said, well, I think we might have to do surgery. Like, let me get a CAT scan. And sure enough, the patients will tell you how long it lasts and they can be very attuned to letting you know some, of course, the polyp growers, it might be much sooner. It might be a couple of months and you decide you need to do something different or even have them on a biologic if you're going to balloon or do surgery again. But most patients that get a balloon, that improvement lasts years as far as I have seen. You know, you uh, mentioned the patient that you saw recently. And when you are thinking about a revision, how do you decide if you're going to repeat a balloon or do a formal FES? If the patient has polyposis that's recurred and they haven't come back, I think that patient will get a formal FES. And th th those are some of the few patients where I'll say, gosh, maybe I underestimated their inflammatory disease and I really need to get things open. Other than that, I will often go by the length of time as a guide. So if you had a balloon sinuplasty and you did, of let's say three or four sinuses and you did wonderfully and you had a turbinate reduction, and years have gone by. And as a patient, you're telling me, I did really well, but this is starting to clog up. There's no polyposis. I'm happy to try ballooning them again. In fact, with the same speech, right? This may not last another six, seven years. You may end up needing surgery. We'll know that within two, three months. In terms of complications, you know, we talked a little bit about recirculation, of seeing that more common with a fess as opposed to a balloon. What about scarring? Like, do you ever see that middle turbinate lateralize? Because just trying to get the balloon and the scope in and then angling it to the max. And do you ever get scarring from the middle turbinate? I would say that, unfortunately, for the middle turbinate, the scarring is caused by my own instrumentation during a traditional fess. And as much as we all feel that 
we don't cause injury to the middle turbinate. That is singularly between the un- residual uncinate and middle turbinate, you know, instability is singularly the main reason that I've ever needed to do revision surgery. So I don't, I will say where I land with balloon sinuplasty is I always feel and I tell the patient, this may not do enough, you know? This may not accomplish all the things that we want to accomplish, but if you're on less medications, you're feeling better, you want to get back to work, this is a good option. But I don't generally find that I'm causing dilemmas at the other end. Like, I don't, I could be wrong, but I don't really think I ever destabilize the middle turbinate or cause scarring from doing a balloon instead of doing traditional surgery. So I don't really counsel them. That's not part of my counseling at all, in fact, whereas it is if you know, they're having a traditional fest. Um, Do you just see it less? Is it just less common after a balloon? I haven't really ever seen it ever. Now that I've said that, it'll probably (laughs) happen next week. But I don't think I've ever done a balloon only case. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right? Even if they're in the operating room, recurrent acute, septoplasty, turbinates, very minimal sinus disease. I say, you know what? You had forehead pressure. Let's do your frontal balloons. I still in those, I'm not, I'm just not likely to see middle turbinate lateralization from a balloon-only case. I just don't experience that. In terms of major complications that we think of with FAST, injury to the orbit, arterial bleed, CSF leak, how common is that with a balloon? We still hear about that in the literature, right? And it, it always gives me pause and it always makes me feel that I should use the guide wire or if I'm in the operating room, I should use the image guidance. But personally, I have not experienced it with balloon only. I really haven't. I've been lucky to not. I think other people have. One caveat recently as we, you know, we're teaching a group of physicians, I will say that the same mantra that applies to traditional sinus surgery instrumentation, which is never push, always pull and always guide towards you, is exactly the same with the balloon. So never feel that if I'm using the express balloon, you know, well, it's just a balloon, so I could just try to push into the frontal sinus, for example, or push. If you're not pushing, then I think using that mantra, I just don't think you're going to get a CSF leak or be into the orbit. Yeah. I I mean, and what you said, say makes sense. It should fall easily in. And I think you said this before that sometimes you just can't get into a sinus and that's okay. I mean, sometimes that happens and, you know, you have to go do something more formal. Um, I'm sure that's not very often, but as as anything, it happens. It does Um, happen. And the further I've got in my career, the more acceptable it's been to just accept defeat. Even when, if you're with residents or PAs, they want you to keep trying. If if I can't get in and the patient's awake and I don't have, you know, the image guidance that I would in a hybrid case in the operating room, I just say, hey, you know, this was good. This is not going to work out today. So we're going to have to regroup because if you don't edit yourself when you're nervous and you've been trying and the area starting to get bloody, that's when you're going to run into problems. So, you know, you it's okay to admit defeat. You can come back another day to tackle that. That's, that's surgery, right? I mean, that's right. the art of medicine and that that's surgery. Tell me about the training course. I, I would tell you if you're not doing a lot of balloon sinuplasty and residency training, or maybe it wasn't part of your initial practice, where can you, you know, tell me about the training courses, you, you know, if you do want to learn more or incorporate this into your practice? I think it's wonderful. I think in this day and age, unlike when I started, if I hadn't done a rhinology and skull-based fellowship, I think it would have been intimidating years ago to say, let me just try it, you know, on a on a back table with a head model and then do it in the office. Nowadays, recently, I was teaching at the Stryker Advanced Sinonasal course, I believe. And it was wonderful because the participants, you can be a practicing physician. And I think every company balloon, instrument, otherwise runs programs that you can show up with. And here's the key. There is no reason to feel bad about asking questions. You may have been years in practice at a hospital where you had rhinologists flitting about that could help you. And now suddenly some of the folks moved into a private practice and they're on their own and they're trying to address the frontal sinus. I thought it was fabulous. I think any 
physician, any ENT that wants to do more should be able to get that training without feeling as we all do, that as surgeons, we have to know everything and it's embarrassing if we don't know. And you get practice. So these participants not only got teaching, but they got practice on cadaver models with all the tools so that when they're doing it in the operating room, it's not for the first time. I I think that should be for everyone every few years. Yeah. As we slowly start to wrap it up, Aisha, any final pearls that you have for our audience? I think that while we're here talking about balloon sinuplasty, we're really talking about the fact that sinusitis and inflammatory disease continues to be complex for ENTs, continues to be something that patients come to see us for, that many of us still have trouble solving. And I would argue that as much as I love being a rhinologist, I think being an otolaryngologist, anyone and everyone should feel comfortable starting to expand and use all the tools that are at your disposal. So my goal is to say, it's not mysterious. It's just comfort, practice, like anything else, having some mentors, friends, colleagues. Balloon time plus is just one of the options. But I think people can do a lot more in the operating room and in the office. While I love that colleagues refer to me, like our otologist, our head and neck refer to me, they can do a lot of this stuff. And I'm happy to show them. They just often don't take me up on the offer. But <laughs> no, I throw that out there in this, in this, in this setting. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Aisha. If any of our audience or listeners want to reach out to you or have any uh, questions, are you on any social media? Yes, absolutely. I am very newly on Instagram. So feel free to, to reach out to me there. But I am definitely on LinkedIn. I'm on Doximity. I'm on Facebook, although I generally use that infrequently. And you can just Google me and even email me through the hospital website. So I'm, I'm very happy to reach out. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor Spurgeon-Hess and Yvonne Ogrodzinski. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.